What's going on, everybody? This is the Grinders Podcast, and this is me, Addison Corbin. And we also have James, the pretty boy Chapman, as well as a new guest on the show today, Adam Schaefer from the Mind Pump Podcast. He is a killer when it comes to culture. He is a killer when it comes to hiring teams, and he is a killer when it comes to leadership. Adam, it is good to have you on, brother, and feel free to give us a brief introduction, my man. Oh, man. Well, I'm uh, formerly a, a personal trainer of 18 years and now a, a podcaster and running a media fitness company or a fitness media company. So um Dove into the digital media world just about five years ago or so. Um, turned on my Instagram and Facebook uh, with the intention of building a business. At that time, uh, I was not using social media for the intention of building a business, nor was I even really using it for social reasons. Uh, I come from a little bit older generation where uh, we make all of our friends in person, and so I always <laughs> used to look at uh, these, these platforms as these silly, silly ways to connect to people. And, you know, I, I was too cool for that. And I already had friends and was already had a busy life and I had no need for getting online. And that was kind of my attitude, uh, about Facebook and Instagram and all the other, you know, cool Twitter, Snapchat, whatever platforms, YouTube. Um, but as I saw the fitness business kind of staying stagnant as the rest of the world around us evolved, um, I started to recognize quickly that um, I needed to pivot in my current business, which was just personal training and working in a, a big box gym, uh, that this was kind of the future. And I remember when I had met Taylor, who works for the company now, uh, he was a young 23-year-old 20, that was the first person that I had ever met that actually had built a six-figure-plus business off of his Twitter and Facebook. This was actually before Instagram even existed. And up until that point, I had heard of people making money from social media, but I had not met somebody who had actually done it yet. And he was the first person to kind of uh, reveal that to me and show me what he had done to build this e-commerce site. And I was instantly fascinated with it and the the possibility of uh, what I could do at that time. And I knew that, okay, if this young 23-year-old kid could figure this out, he was in a different market. I mean, he was in the, the shoe game. So mm -hmm. all the sneakerheads that are listening, that's how we got connected was I was a sneakerhead and he used to connect people uh, that were looking for a special pair of sneakers. So if you were looking for a pair of Jordan 5s, uh, Taylor was the guy who would piece those two people together and uh, broker it. But the difference with Taylor was instead of making a broker fee, which was pretty standard in that space, uh, he did it for free. And he really flipped that model on its head. Um, as far as I know, he was one of the only people that were doing this, at least in the Bay Area and, and in my circle. And because he used to do it for free and he was a credible source and he always connected people together that were providing uh, authentic real shoes and for the best deal he became very popular pretty fast on twitter and facebook and built himself i don't know at that time i think he had about 10 or 15,000 people that were connected to him and he had used that uh to begin a e-commerce site where he was selling stuff that you know sneakerheads would like air fresheners that were you know shaped like jordan sneakers keychains you know t-shirts with sneakers on it hoodies and clocks with sneakers, just everything you could think of that as shoelaces that a sneakerhead would be interested in uh, and was very successful with that. And I was very fascinated by it. And that same day I went home after spending a few hours at lunch with him and turned on my Instagram with the intention to uh, build a business off of it. Yeah. And that, that's, to be able to pivot and to know how to pivot and when to pivot uh, are all very important things. Um, and for you to be able to see what was coming and how you wanted to do it, that, that's, that, that's very important as, as, um, as a business owner, basically. Um, and there was a few things that I wanted to go into was uh, – so what was, what was your main role at like the big, the big box gym? 
So I started off as a personal trainer um, when I was 20. And shortly after, it was only about a year, I'd say a year and a half. So the first six months, I was promoted to an assistant fitness manager. Uh, a year later, I was promoted to have my first club. So I was at FM. Back then, um, a club was ran by an OM, an FM, and a GM. So all, we were three department heads that ran a facility. So, and I was in charge of the fitness department. Although you helped with other departments, you had a main department that you oversaw. And together, the three of us collective heads uh, managed and ran these facilities. Most of these facilities uh, produced anywhere between one to $3 million uh, a year in revenue. And so I was responsible for anywhere between eight hundred thousand to a uh, million dollars of revenue a year on the in the first club, and that continued to increase as I uh, moved up in the company. So uh, every couple of years, I'd say it was like every three, two and a half to three years, I was promoted up to a bigger and bigger facility until eventually I got to uh, one of the largest uh, twenty-four hour fitnesses in NorCal as far as revenue is concerned, mm-hmm. and. Uh, managed uh, trainers for a long time. Now I had the opportunity to switch over to the general manager side because I was also really good in sales and I enjoyed that process. Um, but I never left fitness. I, I as far as uh, the fitness department, I loved training clients. I loved working with trainers, and as much as I loved sales and developing salespeople, uh, I I liked the fitness side. So I actually stayed in that position for a really long time. And I did that for almost 10 years. It was 10 years before um, I took a two and a half year hiatus uh, where I left the fitness space uh, for medical marijuana. I was actually part of uh, two of the first ever uh, medical marijuana facilities in the Bay Area. Uh, I helped launch those and uh, manage that. And the way I fell into that, I had, I had no business in marijuana. In fact, at that time in my life, I was actually anti-marijuana. I had used it twice in my life, had a bad experience with it both times and wanted nothing to do with it. What, what got me curious about it was I saw the writing on the wall there. Also, I saw the direction that cannabis was going, uh, the legalization, uh, the clubs that were starting to pop up in LA and then soon to be in the Bay Area. And I had a client at the time that was planning on opening six of the first 12 that came into San Jose and he saw the way I managed and led my team and the success that I had uh, within the gym business and wanted to uh, see me run his facility. So he was recruiting me to basically lead and manage and didn't really care how much I knew about marijuana. And so I was uh, going back and forth on if this was something that I would consider doing and I remember he met with me one night and, and at dinner he slid over a piece of paper and said, this is the least you'll make in your first year. And I opened it up and it was um, significantly more than anything that I'd ever made in my life at that time. And I said I would quit tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. I actually put my notice in after that. I walked away from 401k benefits, six-figure job, a cushy position that I had established for myself because I'd been in the business for so long. And I walked away from all of that to pursue uh, a, a business in cannabis and medical marijuana and did that for two and a half years and it was an incredible learning experience. I mean, I went down to uh, Barnes & Noble the same day and picked up a bunch of books on, on marijuana and wanted to start to learn everything that I possibly could about this new venture that I was heading into. And while I did that, I became uh, fascinated with uh, the benefits, the the benefits of CBD and what it actually can do for people and went from being somebody who was kind of anti-marijuana to uh, seeing the other side of it and becoming more pro-cannabis. And at the same time, this is actually how Sal and I got connected. Sal was going through, um, his mother-in-law was dying of cancer. And at that time, he was doing a lot of research on cannabis and the benefits of it uh, for cancer patients. And so him and I had known of each other because we both worked for the same company, 24 Hour Fitness, and we both were known as top performers. We, uh, I believe today we still own a bunch of the sales and production records in the company. So I knew of Sal, Sal knew of me, but we had never hung out. We were never really friends, but we were connected to each other. We had mutual friends and we started talking on Facebook and the conversation was actually more around cannabis when we first started talking. We were both kind of fascinated that these two 
you know, fitness geeks were uh, also into learning about cannabis at the same time. And so we were sharing articles and information and studies back and forth and uh, just connecting with each other. And just, you know, I could tell instantly that we, we, we liked each other and it's what had people had told us. I had for many years, people told me, you got to meet this guy, Sal, you got to meet this guy, Sal, you'll love him. Uh, and he was told the same thing about me. And it was true. The minute we started talking, you could tell that there was a connection that we had and we would continue talking back and forth via Facebook. And at that same time, he was also working on uh, MAPS Anabolic, which is uh, one of our programs, the first program we ever released with uh, Doug Eggie, who is our producer. They were uh, building this program. So they were already, uh, they already videoed it all. They were actually on the marketing piece of it. So Doug and him were already creating all the marketing material that was going to go with it. And uh, at this time too, I'm kind of getting over marijuana. I, I'd done it for a long, uh, long enough now that I had made enough money that it wasn't about just the money for me. I'd realized that I, I didn't enjoy it the way I lo- loved health and fitness. And so I'm looking to move back into fitness. And this is, uh, you know, I'm bouncing around on these stories, but this is also where I'm meeting Taylor at the same time and learning about his uh, e-commerce business and going, okay, I'm going to start uh, my Instagram. And so I started with the intentions to build a business and kind of simultaneously doing that while I'm also talking to Sal. And Sal sends me over the marketing material for Maps and a Bulk, says, hey, I'd like for you to take a look at this and tell me what you think. And I looked at it and I instantly was like incredibly impressed with the information that he was presenting, the way he was presenting it, that I said, we got to meet. And so that was kind of the beginning of Mind Pump. We all met together at my house, Doug, myself, Justin, and Sal. And for the first time, we're all meeting together. And it was instant fire, man. I mean, we were in the room and uh, you you had four guys, all with diverse backgrounds, although uh, all into health and fitness, um, very different. And, and we were, uh, had different passions, um, uh, but had all come to a similar conclusion about the fitness industry in general, just it's broken. Uh, we have all this, uh, we're in a health crisis. We're continuing to get where, I mean, we're on pace right now to, uh, healthcare potentially bankrupting our country. And although we're more knowledgeable, we have more access to information, we are getting uh, we are getting worse year after year, and the the fitness industry that we love so much was not helping the situation. In fact, it was crippling uh, the the situation, and we saw that and wanted to share information that we had learned over all the years of personal training that had really started to help our our clients, and that was not what was getting conveyed to the average uh, general population, and that's when Doug kind of piped up and said, Hey, why don't we, let's put this on a podcast. And the rest of us were really unfamiliar with what it would take to start a podcast. And Doug said, I've got the basic equipment that we need to do it. And you know, it's relatively easy to put it out there. Let's, let's put it out there and see what it does. And that was the birth of mind pump. We started it as a project to give. Um, it wasn't uh, this mastermind meeting that we had and said, Oh, we're going to make millions of dollars. If we do this, it was, we've got a lot of information that we know has uh, helped a lot of our clients and people and was counter to the information we saw being presented. And we wanted to be kind of the light of the fitness space. And, you know, we were, uh, obviously massively narcissistic and believed that we could change the industry for the good. And we began putting out content and to see where it would take off. And, you know, week over week, we saw organic growth. More and more people were listening, more and people were showing. And we had no talent or any sort of experience in media, audio, video. I mean, none of us did. It was just purely giving a solid, good information. Uh, and we did it in a entertaining way. We saw something uh, at this time that, you know, what was going on with the the information that was being provided to the space was the bulk of it that people were listening to were by celebrities and people that were entertaining or in the social media world that looked sexy and cool. Uh, these were the people that were giving the, the advice, you know, this is the people that were on the people that were on the front of the covers of the magazines were these 
you know, fitness professionals or I mean, uh, men's physique pros or bodybuilders or women's bikini athletes. But the really good information, the, the science-based information, the, the gurus, the PhDs that were working on all of the stuff that uh, we, were, we had learned later on as trainers, no one was really listening to them. They were boring. They were dry. They talked over uh, the average listener. Uh, so even though we were consuming that information, I was listening to these boring podcasts or I was reading these dry textbooks. The average consumer was not. And so we knew that the secret sauce to getting traction for Mind Pump was to provide an entertainment value, give people this uh, comedic relief or a good discussion or locker room type banter as it's been coined as. Uh, so you, we sucked you in with a little bit of entertaining info and then we would transition into good science-based information and stuff that was game-changing for us as trainers during our career. And that was really the secret sauce that uh, started to get the traction for Mind Pump. And then the rest is more all about what it's like to, to scale a business, you know, which is now it's right. a, a, whole, a whole new monster that's got a team of people and contractors working for it. And uh, it's, uh, it's been a blast, man. It's been a, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. Uh, and so you gave us a lot of information there and, and a lot of uh, background info. And I want to kind of break it down into you know, separate pieces. I don't want to um, just overlook the simple fact of, of where you started in a, in a big box gym from being just a personal trainer, uh, which is hardened in itself. Um, I totally get that. Um, and then working your way up to an FM, GM, and then back to FM. I mean, those are all personal achievements that I think you can't you can't get to those points without having some sort of a leadership capability and then also being able to form a team you know and whether that's a small team or a big team you have to be able to build culture um and Absolutely. so i'd like to hear i'd like to hear a little bit more what you what you would kind of um as you were building up and you got into these roles as as a newcomer into an fm or a gm uh, what were some of the things that you were doing to become better in those roles and, and be able to lead? Well, I think a, a lot of it is, is just flat out hard work, falling on your face, getting back up again. But there are some things that I think that I had as strengths. When I look back now and I go like, you know, what, what was it? And I get interviewed like this and people ask me, you know, how did you have this success? How did you lead these people? How did you build this culture? You know, I, I was blessed to come up playing sports my whole life. So I've, I've always been an athlete, um, but I wasn't a great athlete. Like I was never uh, the all-star player. I mean, I, I had my moments in, in my childhood growing up where, you know, I was scored decent amount of points on the team and I was a starter and things like that. But I was never like the man. I was never, uh, you know, I was not built to be the most uh, athletic phenom, especially in basketball and soccer, which is mainly what I played growing up. Uh, so I wasn't th that great. But sports taught me so much um, about team, about culture, about leadership. And I think that because I had that experience and I understood that really well, that I think that transferred over into business. And it was a very seamless transition for someone because it was – I was so young when I got into management. I mean, by the time I was 21, I was leading a team of trainers of, there was 15 trainers and I was 21 and everybody else was older than me. Everybody was older than me. Everybody had more experience than me, but I kind of had this natural gift to lead. And some of that too has to do with my childhood. I, you know, I'm the oldest of five. My father committed suicide when I was seven years old. And so I was uh, thrusted into an, a parent uh, slash leadership role in the family uh, early on. And that was just purely out of survival. So it's not like as a, as a seven-year-old kid, you take, the, uh, take on this uh, task of, oh, I'm going to be the leader of the family and I'm going to rise up. You just, you do what you have to do. And, you know, I look back now and I recognize that, oh, okay, this was uh, uh, tantamount to my success to as an adult because it, forced me into becoming a leader even before I probably even wanted to be one. So I, I had, I had that uh, in, 
you know, my experience growing up as a kid. And so when I got into like the gym industry, one of the things that I noticed um, right away was this, this kind of competitive environment amongst trainers. And um, I knew and from playing on teams, uh, I played on terrible teams and I've played on great teams and I played on everything in between. And the teams that were the most successful, the ones that just killed it, where we had seasons that we were – I never went on an undefeated team, but I was on teams that were close to undefeated where we lose like one game in the season. And so one of the things that I recognized about a, a team that was that dominant, what, it wasn't that we always had the best players. We didn't always have uh, the, 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 the most recruited or the, the, the most talented guys on the team – uh, what it was was the chemistry and the culture of the team that made us so great. Because I had been on teams before that where we had some really talented players that you think we would be so great, but then the, the cohesiveness of the team and the way we flowed on the court was just we were terrible. We were uh, in bickering in the locker room and just shit like that going on. And I saw this and I pieced it together like, wow, it does, just because these guys have the best players doesn't always make them the best team. And I saw similar parallels with trainers. You'd have really, really good trainers, and then you'd have a gym that was very unsuccessful because the culture was shitty. They didn't uh, get along very well. Just You could just tell. And then you would have another team of like subpar trainers. And by subpar, I mean like their, maybe their experience wasn't there. Their look was average. Um, they weren't the most talented salespeople. They didn't have the highest education. But then they would just crush it. And it had a lot to do with the culture and the environment. And so what I saw was a lot of trainers that were competitive with each other because they were all fishing out of the same pond and it created this scarcity mindset. And I was never like that. I came in and I came in with that sports background of, of, of giving and teaching everything that I learned. I, if I learned something new and did you read this new study that just came out that talks about artificial sweeteners? Did you know about this? And, and so I was constantly giving information to uh, my peers. And at that time, people looked at that as like your competition. Like, why would you want to tell uh, other trainers like something that separates you from them? And I was like, nah, it doesn't work that way. Like if, if we all get better, um, you know, the whole ship will rise. And instead of trying to, to be, you know, everything, keep all the information myself and have that scarcity mindset, I saw the value in, in helping others. And I, and I live by a quote that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I really cared about my team, even when I wasn't managing them, even when I was a peer. So even when I was their peer, I was staying an hour or two hours later than work and uh, mentoring the newest trainer or sharing information with some of the veteran trainers that I was learning or asking questions, you know, pulling on their shirt and, you know, asking them information. And so I got this reputation as uh, somebody who truly cared about his peers and his, his team that he worked with. And so that gave me a lot of respect when I, when I was promoted into the leadership role. So that right away helped out a lot with my success as a leader was, you know, leading from that place. And that was one of the first things that I, I learned and I would teach others was to not be afraid of of giving and providing and doing for others because it ends up coming back. And when you do it unconditionally with the, the intentions of just being a good person and just truly trying to help others, that's when it really comes back. If you do it with the intention that you're expecting something in return, most people can, will see through that and it'll be felt and you won't be received the same way. So it's important that you, you help your peers, you help your team, you help your staff. And you know, with them getting better, we all get better. And so that really helped out, man, that, 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 that having that background as a kid and then starting to apply those, uh, those same skills or understandings that I came, came to as a, as a young child playing sports and, and being a, the leader of the family. And then I, and then I loved it. I, th I actually started to get into it. Like, I mean, I, I enjoyed watching my team succeed more than I enjoyed my own personal success. And great team players are like this. Uh, I mean, I, I always reference the Golden State Warriors. I'm a big diehard Warriors fan. And um, I love if you're paying attention to them and watching them right now, what's happening. We're, 
We don't have Kevin Durant, who is arguably the best player in, on the earth right now next to LeBron James. And our team is playing better basketball than we've ever played. And a lot of that has to do with the culture within the team is you've got extremely talented players that as an individual could probably go on any team and really impact that team as far as wins and success. But because they're, they, they have control of their egos and they're okay with, you know, not being the main man for the night and not scoring all the points and they care about assisting their, their teammates they just dominate and crush because everybody else is battling with insecurities and ego and fighting over the ball and fighting over points and wanting to be the man. And so I, I started to piece that all together on how closely related uh, that was to business. And that started leading me down the path of reading a lot too. So I began reading a lot of leadership books. The first a uh, leadership book that I cracked open was a John C. Maxwell book, and I just fell in love with the way he wrote, and I went down the rabbit hole of most all his books. I haven't read them all, but I've read a, a good chunk of them, probably a good 15 to 20 John C. Maxwell leadership books, and that really gave me the thirst for uh, leadership, uh, personal development, and uh, that that's when my, my growth-minded uh, uh, mentality really started to blossom and I began trying to uh, become a better leader and a better leader. And there's a lot of lessons that I learned. I mean, by no means do I think I was a great leader out the gates. I think I was, I think I was better than uh, a lot of people at that time that my peers, but I don't think I was a great leader yet. I think that I was, I think I cared about being a great leader and that's what separated me from everybody else already was that I wanted to be better I, I took responsibility for any uh, lack of success that the club was having. If a trainer failed, they didn't fail. I failed because I was, mm-hmm. I was the boss. I was the leader. I was the one developing these people. And if we weren't having success, it was always my fault. And so I owned that early, early on as a young 20-year-old. And, and I had a thirst uh, for being better. And that really was the formula for me to start to understand leadership and then and then culture, man, like Colt, you, you, you keep touching on that. And I think that's, I think that's so important that, that you, you have an incredible culture. And when we were in the gym industry, it was, it was really obvious. So I was so blessed to be in a situation like this because we, 24 Fitness is a huge billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company. And we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of clubs all over the place. And I've toured tons of them, probably well over 124 fitnesses I've been in in my life. And when you walk into the facility, there's a, there's a very obvious difference uh, of a club that is well-managed, well-led, and has created incredible culture. You can feel it when you walk in the door right away. It's, cr- it's crazy how obvious it is. And it, it took me, obviously, years of being around that to piece that together. But now it's like even today and being disconnected from the company. I can fly to Texas and do some, you know, be out there for business, stop by a 24-hour fitness to work out. And when I walk in, I can instantly tell how good the leadership is there just by how the culture feels when I walk in. And yeah, I think that that's just my experience in fitness, but that carries over to all business. And if you have built this culture, that um, it, it has got this growth-minded uh, mentality. It's got this uh, you know, positive attitude of wanting to help everyone around them, has good energy, uh, the people love and enjoy their work. I mean, you can, it's infectious, and you can just feel it when you, when you walk in. And when you're in a business that's trying to generate revenue, uh, that creates a buying environment. Um, it's, a, it's a positive, happy environment that makes it easier to make transactions and sales. And man, making that connection early on in my life was so important because uh, anytime, even when, you know, mind pump, you know, here we are 15 plus years later. And, you know, if there's a a, challenge that we're having the business, like it's really easy for me to to look inside, to reflect on myself. Where where am I dropping the ball? Uh, What's going on with my culture? Like, you always go back to that because you understand the importance of it uh, when it comes to having a successful business. Absolutely. 100% agree with you on culture. You know, the beauty about culture to me is that it's something people actually feel. It's not just something they see, they feel it. And think about anything in your life. 
you know, you could go to religion, you could go to love, you go to whatever. When you feel it inside of you, it's completely different. And building good culture and people feel that. It's not only what's said, it's not what's hanging on the wall, it's not the stickers you have or what's in the employee handbook that nobody ever fucking looks at. Right. When they feel it, it makes all the difference. Oh, it's infectious. It's like being on a team that's a, a, an incredible team to be on. And when you have that environment, then people like, they love putting the work in. Just like on a team, a, a, a basketball team of players that love, love working with each other. They have a goal of, you know, winning the championship. They believe they can do it. Then you see the, the attitude of practice. Practice is fun. Everybody knows practice is hard. That's the grind, right? That's, yeah. but, but you see the, 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 them loving it. Well, that same thing translates in the business. Like, you know, work is rarely ever fun. You know, it's mostly the grind and all the stuff you have to, to put in it. But when you care about winning, when you care about being better, when you care about being the best. And so that culture, that environment, uh, I was able to create that in the fitness space that, you know, we, it was cool too, because uh, again, being very blessed, being in a company like 24 hour fitness, they were very sales driven. We used to get reports every single month. Uh, they were called the PPR, which is a personal production report. So I could see how well my team, myself, my club was doing in, com in comparison to the 500 other clubs in the company. And, you know, so I was able to motivate my team to be the best. Like we, we didn't want to be the second best training staff. We didn't want to be no one even heard of us. Like we cared about being so good that people wanted to know what are these guys and girls doing so different than everybody else. And so I, I helped build that pride into my team to care about winning. Then once you have instilled that, or the, which is, I think, for the most part, pretty easy. Most people want to be the best, say they want to be the best or, you know, want to win. But the, the next piece to that puzzle is now how can you motivate the team to want to be better and to want to work towards that goal every single day? And that's, it's really important that you have a, a long-term goal and then you have short-term decisions. And like Mind Pump, it's crazy. We have this crazy goal of we believe that we're going to change the fitness industry, like how people deliver information and how, what they deliver as far as information. And we know it's a fucking monster to move because it's not how most people make money in this space right now. But we have this absurd goal to fundamentally change the industry. And because we all have that goal and everybody that works for or with Mind Pump has the same goal, it's really easy to create this winning culture. Like, you know, every time we see growth on any side of the business, like we're moving that needle in that direction. Like we're we're getting bigger. We're actually making a difference. You know, we were this little kid splashing in the water in a, in a big old pond of water that you can't see nothing or feel nothing. But now we're starting to drop boulders in that water and there's a rippling effect that's happening. Like we're starting to become a voice in this space and we're starting to move the needle a little bit. And that's fucking motivating and exciting for the team. And if you can get your team bought around a, a, a purpose, a goal, then creating that culture becomes a lot easier. Then it's like, okay, we all have a purpose. We all have a goal. We all agree on it. We're all excited about it. Now let's talk about the day-to-day -day work that we need to do to put in to get that success, to get to win. What do we have to do? Okay, well, we got to do a lot of the things that we don't want to do so we can do the things we want to do later, which means we got to put this work in. We got to make those phone calls. We got to do this shitty behind-the-scenes stuff that nobody sees that you're not going to get any accolades for, but that's what winning teams are built on. They're built on the practice. They're built on the grind. They're built on the shit that isn't flashy and isn't fun, but that really moves the needle and makes you a better version of yourself. How do I implement that into a team? Well, that's, this starts with having a collective goal. And I think this is a thing that a lot of leaders struggle with. And this is any business that you're in, you know, they come into a man management role. They're overseeing 15, 20, 30 employees and they go right into you know, you know, telling people if they're doing their job right or wrong. It's like, man, if you come in a, a management or leadership role and your job right away turns into telling people what they do right or wrong all day long and you're just a manager, you're not a leader. You're not leading these people into towards a purpose or a goal. All you're doing is you're just being a dictator. You're coming in and telling them what they're doing right or not doing right. That was, reminds me of the, the most uh, important book that I ever read in my, my leadership career. 
it's a day read. And I tell this to anybody I ever talked to about leadership. It was one minute manager and you could knock this book out in, in a single day. I don't know if, have you read this book yet? No, I haven't. So read this book. It's an important read if you care about leadership and it's, it changed how I led up until this point. I had a lot of success my first five years in leadership, uh, purely off of my own work ethic and my attitude of speed of the leader. That's uh, all the message I received early on was speed of the leader. If I run hard and I'm talented, then others will respect me. I can teach them, develop them up, and I'll find a couple people that are like me and together will success. I had a lot of success that, with that, and so I was kind of blinded. Uh, by evolving myself into this greater leader. And during that time that I started reading a lot, I fell across this book called One Minute Manager. And the premise of the book is this. It's a kid who interviews a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And this company, uh, this interview this kid's doing, he decides he's going to interview all his employees. Instead of interviewing the, the CEO, he'll do that at the very end. He's going to interview you know, the secretary, the VP, all this, all these department heads. And as he's going through the interview, he's asking all the basic business questions, you know, oh, does he hold you accountable? You know, does he reward you for this? Does he do any, and everyone's going like, no, not really. No, not really. But then he go like, well, I mean, do you think he's a good leader? Oh, he's amazing. He's amazing. He's so amazing. Well, do you spend hours with him? No, I spent about one minute with him. And then he's just baffled by, all these people that are seeing the praises of the CEO, yet he doesn't do any of these practices that he's heard. He's learning in business school. He only spends one minute with all these people and he's scratching his head. Like what the fuck is this guy doing that? He's got this fortune 500 company and he, and everybody loves him yet. He only spends one minute with them. And the moral of the story or what ends up happening is he ends up interviewing the CEO and he, and the CEO tells him like, I don't focus on what my team isn't doing right or well. I don't have a lot of time to spend with all these employees. So when I only got a minute with them, it needs to be impactful. It needs to be important. And what I found is impactful and it's important is to point out the things that they're doing right. So my job as a leader is to find the things that each of my, my employees are doing really well and to make sure that I let them know that I recognize it, I see it, and I appreciate it. And I was like, whoa, that was kind of mind-blowing for me at that time in my career. And I right away, like anything else, I'm a numbers guy too. So I, I, I'm not just someone who's like, oh, cool. This is how I'm going to start doing things. I'm going to change how I lead. I was like, okay, let me implement something that will put this into practice and that will be measurable that I could go back and say, does this really work like this book says? And so at that moment, this was before iPhones were around. I had the, the Palm Trio or whatever. And I, I put all my trainers' names. I think I have about 20 at this time. So I put all my trainers in there and I have it to where it sets an alarm in the day and a name pops up. So it would say, you know, Richard, all of a sudden my alarm would go off at 12 o'clock on Monday. And I knew when that alarm went off on my phone, I had to stop. I made a, I made a goal that I would stop whatever it was I was doing, put the phone down, find Richard on the floor somewhere, walk over to him, put my hand on his shoulder, look him in the eyes and point out something that I'd seen him do recently, ideally that day, recently that he's done really well or that I appreciate, you know, and it could be something as simple as completing his files on time or being extra thorough with the last client that he just trained. And I'd walk over and I would do that. And I did that really consistently for about two months. And it was about two months in when I had realized the impact it was making. And what had happened was a trainer named Anthony walked into my office one, one afternoon and he comes walking in and he just starts pouring his guts out about all the things he's not doing well. Adam, you know, I know the other day that I was a few minutes late. I'm, I'm sorry, this happened. This won't happen again. This is what's going on. I've got this. And he's giving me all these line of excuses and he's telling me he hasn't completed. And just everything that he was, he wasn't doing right or wasn't doing up to what he knew he was capable of. He starts pouring out to me and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is, why is he telling me all this right now? And I realized at that moment that his alarm had went off that week to go over and say something to him. And I had missed him. I didn't do it. And it was the first kid that I had missed. And I went, Whoa, this dude the first time I don't get over to, to let him know what a great job is, he right away must have felt guilt about something that he wasn't doing and felt compelled to come share with me 
what he wasn't doing well and how he was going to fix it. Now, what's so powerful about that and what I've learned about leadership is you can have all the information in the world. You could be the smartest guy, the best, best guy at whatever it is that you do. And, and trying to teach that is a whole different monster because if people don't want to receive that information, it don't mean shit. It don't matter how smart you are, don't matter all the information you have to provide them, how well you can do their job, doesn't matter. If they're not willing to receive that information, they don't want to learn, they don't want to grow, it, it doesn't matter. It's not going to transfer over to them. But if they come to you open-minded or wanting to grow or wanting to learn, it's incredibly impactful when you teach or you show or you lead. And so that's what I had learned from this was, whoa, this puts these guys and girls in this situation where I'm constantly telling them how great they are. If they're slipping up, they feel compelled to share with me why they're slipping up. That opens the door now for me to lead and coach and teach him how to handle whatever it is that he's struggling with. And it's coming from a different place. It's coming from a place of caring. You know, he's pouring his guts out on why he fucked up and all the other things. My response back to him isn't, oh my God, you did fuck up. Let me write you up. It's, oh man, it's okay. Listen, I know things get busy. I know you're going through school right now, finishing your degree, and you're also trying to manage this. Here are some things that helped me be a better trainer when I had a lot on my plate and then I can coach. And then he walks out and he feels good about it. He doesn't feel like he just got beat down and it forever changed uh, my leadership skills and started to take me to a whole new level uh, of building a culture and building a team. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great story. I really like that. Mm. Very yeah, pivotal like, moment. Yeah, I mean, you got you got to think about how all those all of those things come into play when the simple fact that you took the the initiative to go ahead and build your leadership abilities to build your culture to build. Um, your team as, as, as a whole, and then being able to go find something like the one minute manager and to simply take that moment and apply it and then measure it because what we measure, you know, we, we can, we can, we can manage. And that was, I like, I like how you said that in, in the simple fact of how can I, how can I apply this and be able to understand how it goes when you're talking about starting the podcast and talking about how y'all were just basically uh, uh, narcissistic enough to, to do it, you know, but then you immediately talked about all the, the, the humble pieces where, you know, things that keep people from going forward because they don't think they're knowledgeable enough or know enough, or they're not the person they need to learn more. They need to do more. You know, I, I think that's such a um, critical moment for people to grow, you know, <clears throat> Everybody feels that way. It, what makes a difference is the ones that move forward and still go forward and try to do it. And they, and they know they're going to learn as they go. So uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting takeaway. I appreciate right. it. Right. I, know that I, I know that I'm wise because I know that I know nothing. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I, th I think that, that you have you, – being a leader, there's this incredible duality of being extremely confident – uh, borderline cocky at the same time, extremely humble. And it, that, that duality is something that when you learn to master that or work towards mastering that, I should say, cause I wouldn't consider myself a master at all. I would just say that somebody I, I care about being a master at that, that you're constantly working on that duality. I think that that serves you uh, when, when in leadership, because it is important. You're confident. Nobody is going to follow somebody who, uh, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. Yeah, so yeah. You, you've got to first believe in yourself, your capabilities, what you're willing to do. And then you also got to be uh, humble enough that, like I said earlier, that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You have to yeah. truly care about others and the success of others and putting others before you. So it is this interesting uh, duality that we have of, you know, being so confident to lead, but then also so humble that you can put others before you. Uh, sure. And if you, if you drive towards those two at the same time, like every time I make a decision, um, I, I consider both of those. I consider I need to show confidence. I need to lead. I need to take direction. I need to take control. But then I also, I go, I also need to take into consideration this person's feeling, their perspective, what they want to come out of this, what their desired outcome is. I have to take into consideration all of those things. And then I, and before I make any sort of a move 
or decision. I, I consider all of that. I think that conversation with yourself is so important in uh, how effective of a leader that you are. Just going over everything. I mean, I have a whole bunch of notes here, just kind of going through what, what you, you know, what you went over. Um, and I want to be super mindful of your time today, but uh, I know you just kind of left us out with, with a couple a couple of tips to, to kind of focus on ourselves. Do you, I mean, is there, is there anything else that you would want to, if you could, if you could go back, you know, 20 years, what would be, what would be something you wish you could tell yourself? 20 years. Uh, let's see here. I would probably tell myself to read more at that age. Um, yeah, it was me. It was mid twenties or like my between 24, 25 ish when I really started to uh, pick up books and start reading. And uh, I, I hated, I hated school growing up. Um, not because I wasn't good at it. I always carried like a three, two, three, five GPA, but I carried that without trying, without doing my homework with, I mean, it was just school came pretty easy to me and it was subjects that I didn't care about. And I was bored about um, the bad part about that was, it caused me not to want to like keep learning and growing my early or my late teens and early twenties. Um, sure. I was into training, personal training and I was fascinated with learning about that, but it was that singular topic. Um, I didn't start putting a lot of uh, personal development work and, and growth and leadership and business. Uh, all of that, all those learnings came, came later for me. So uh, I wish I would have got a head start. I wish I had this, uh, you know, this voracious, a reading capability when I was, and I had the capability. I wish I had that desire right. when I was in my early twenties. I think I would be just that much further uh, along than I am today. So if I look back in 20 years and were to pull me, there's a lot of things too. I tell people all the time, man, 20 year old Adam was a fucking pain in the ass. You know what I'm saying? Like he's was confident and stubborn and very focused uh, you know, selfishly, so trying to come back and tell him something would be really difficult. I recognize <laughs> that. I know that, you know, I know that uh, it would be really hard to get me to shift my way of thinking. Like I talk all the time about uh, my attitude towards money and finances. Um, I came from a, a family that didn't have a lot of things. I'm no stranger of food stamps, moved in nine different homes growing up, know what it's like to be a victim. Wow. Uh, so I had a, a, a you know, somewhat rough childhood in comparison to a lot of people. Uh, and so because of that, I had this insatiable desire for things and money and success financially um, that at 20 years old, there's a lot of things that I would have probably told myself about that, that I know I wouldn't listen to. I know that I wanted it so bad that nothing was going to stop me or get in my way to, to reaching this number that I had in my head. And, you know, the only thing that I would ever learn from was reaching that number and realizing that it's not what it, what I thought it was going to be. And in fact, recognizing that, oh, wow, when that was all of my driver and my main focus, there's so many other aspects of life that were, that fell out of favor. You know, my, my relationships with the girl I was dating at the time, my, my friends, I uh, lost two of my good friends uh, that were, I would consider best friends even at that time. Uh, my family relationships, uh, all the, my health and fitness was at its worst. So all these other things in my life that I would consider are important, uh, very important to me, were all at some of its worst when I was the most financially successful. So, but I would have never known that had I not got there myself. And I don't think somebody, even myself, could go back and tell 20-year-old Adam that I think he had to go through it himself and, and feel it, recognize it, uh, before it would shift the way I think, you know? Yep, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> so I guess the, you know, money and reading, and then that, that's exactly where I'm at right now in, in the stage of my life is I found that I'm starting to look more into books than I am, uh, like social media or, or the internet. And it's, it's kind of changing the way that my brain is. Um, and it's, it's even affecting, you know, vocabulary, it's, it's affecting everything, but that's, that's really cool that you just said that. And one thing that you said earlier today was being able to look long or have like a long-term goal and then focus on the short-term, uh, decisions. Right. And that's, like that. yeah, it, it's, it's come up 
it's come up for like the past probably two days. I feel like that's something that's kind of been stuck in my head. But the simple fact that you just said it again, you know, that it just, it touched me. So, well, anything, uh, anything worth doing is going to be fucking hard. Anything yeah. worth doing is going to be hard and challenging. Therefore, if you have something that you have found that's worth doing, that's a major goal, the first thing that you have to come into realization and understanding is that it's going to be fucking hard. And if it wasn't, it would be no fun and it wouldn't be as rewarding to accomplish it. Therefore, this is going to take a lot of work. This is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Most people couldn't do it. And you have to make peace with that if you're going to put in the work that's necessary to have that success. I've never met a millionaire or a billionaire in my life that had overnight success. Everybody thinks they do. I mean, even with Mind Pump, I get it all the time. Like, oh my God, you guys blew up out of no, oh, nowhere. It's like, no, we didn't actually. We have consistently grown at almost the exact same rate year over year for the last five years. It's just been a constant. I mean, just it's, it's blowing up to everybody else. Everybody else is figuring it out or coming on board or, you know, you've now your friend listens and your other friend listens and now it's like, oh, wow, they're blowing up. It's like, no, nah, it's just we have slowly grown year over year. And I tell you what, if, if, I, uh, if I would have thought at the beginning that, you know, oh, we were going to go viral, but speaking to that point, those, I think this is an important read for people uh, in podcasting and social media business, uh, mm -hmm. in this instant gratification world, in this uh, world of virability. Uh, Hitmakers is a great read. Uh, Derek Thompson, I believe, is the author of that. And it talks about the myth behind going viral. We live in this instant gratification world. We live in this, you know, people can go like Justin Bieber, get famous on YouTube and become massive after that because someone found him on YouTube. So now everybody and their mother wants to become a YouTuber or wants to become Instagram famous or wants to start a podcast and get huge. And if you get into it with those intentions and you're chasing all these things that are going to get you, make you go viral, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. Uh, and it's no different than building a business 15, 20 years ago before all these things existed. It's lots of little things that you have to do every single day that don't result in hardly any sort of movement. And it's going to take a very long time and being okay with that and, and embracing the journey. And then also when you get to the next Jedi level is you, you learn to enjoy that process. I mean, the other day I was venting to Katrina. Katrina is my, my girl, the baby of my, my soon to be son or mother of the soon to be my son. And she is uh, my rock for sure. And I'll call her some days because I'm, 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 I'm not uh, immune to frustrating days or struggles or whatever. And you know, I'll call her up and be venting. Ah, fuck, I'm so frustrated with this. I asked for this to get done and then it got done this way. And oh, we had to unpackage all this shit and reship it this way. And I'm so, and I'm barking at her, you know, venting, not barking at her. And she lets me get it all off my chest. And then she, I love the way she challenges the way I think because instead of engaging in it or agreeing with me or fighting with me and disagreeing, she just goes, would you want it any other way? Yeah. I like that. That's right. And, and, and I, and I, and it's, it, you know, she already let me vent and get it all off. And then right. she challenges me that quick and then makes me really reflect and think about it. And, you know, I love that because I go, you know what? You're fucking right. No, I wouldn't. You know how, you know how boring this would be if every time I made a decision, it was, it all fell together. It was all, it was all right. You know, it was, it, it was always the, always perfect. Like, no way this would be lame. Have you guys ever heard Sal tell the, uh, the twilight zone uh, story? Yeah, it's it remind the the one about the the guy who's who dies the the bank robber dies. Have you heard him tell that story before? No, I'm not familiar with it. So it's a Twilight episode, and I, and it's I love this story that he tells this episode, and it's a bank robber, and he's running from the police, and it, he gets shot in the pursuit, and then he dies, and then all of a sudden he wakes up, and he wakes up, and he's in this beautiful room, and I mean it's white and chandeliers and there's beautiful women and there's this guy that comes walking up in a white suit and this big white beard and he's super friendly and he asks him what would you like to do you know and he he asks him what he likes to do and he just starts you know granting him all these wishes oh i like this i want this i like that and it's like poof 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 he's getting all this stuff he's getting to do all these things it's fuck he's loving it he's got these big smile on his face 
And then, the, and then the, and he's at, a, uh, oh, I want to go gambling. So he takes some gambling. He's rolling the dice. He's getting a seven every time. He's, everyone's, all these women are kissing on him, and he's getting money pushed over to him. He's winning every time. He is just fucking loving it. And all of a sudden, the show fast forward, like, you know, uh, seven days later. And he's, he's got a scruffy beard now. He looks all worn out. He's all irritated. And he's, you know, every time he snaps his fingers, this guy appears and gives him whatever he wants. And he snaps his fingers, the guy comes, and he starts venting to him. I, every time I roll the dice, I win. Every time I ask for this food, I get it. Every time, I, and he starts saying all this stuff to him. He goes, I don't understand this. Why, why, is, why is heaven like this? And the guy looks back at him and he laughs and he says, what makes you think you're in heaven? Huh. And wow. I, think that, I think that's such a great message that we don't think about and we think that we would want everything in our lives and want it to be easy and win and get everything. And it's like, no, you know what's crazy? The fucking heaven, the great part that is actually in the challenge, is in the misery, is the, in the ability for you to hit a struggle and to overcome it. Nothing is more rewarding than that. And so when you learn to position and reframe the way you look at obstacles and you look at challenges like this, uh, it gives you a whole new meaning and purpose to whatever it is that you're driving at. And circling all the way back to the beginning of this conversation in leadership and culture, if you can infect the rest of your staff with that same way of thinking and, and they have that attitude at work, imagine how, how much better your employees are. You know? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. And it, it, what gets me, I, I think a lot of people – people who are realistic are not, you should be glad that there's a, that it's difficult. Number one, it weeds out all, you know, a lot of people. I mean, if it was easy, you know, let's I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Right. So, um, and they wouldn't be really achieving anything, but the difficulty, I mean, I think most people who are really trying to go somewhere who are focused, who are listening to podcasts like this, let's, let's be honest. Uh, they're, they're focused on that. They know it's going to be difficult. I think the main thing is when it's been difficult and then maybe down the road, you happen to realize, Hey, what I'm doing is I, I was fine to put it, go through it. I was fine to climb the Hills. I was fine to get my ass whooped, but now I've done all that and it's not working or I did that. And now it's time to change. And it's a different type of difficult, you know, that, that has hit me sometimes where it's like, ah, I put it in, I got some success and then it would change on me. And then I'll have to shift and say, okay, this isn't working anymore. It's not just about me getting my ass whooped. Now I'm getting my ass whooped and I'm taking it and it's not getting me where I want to go. You right. Know? right. It was a great short read for that too. Who moved my cheese? Yeah. We used yeah, to, that's a good one. Yeah. We used to say open to change as we grow. You know, you just got to be able to, uh, and I always like to say to people when we're talking about business stuff is to, to love your ideas, but don't marry them. Um, yeah. It's important that you have passion behind them. You, you love what you're working towards. Otherwise you don't have a lot of purpose in it. But then don't be so committed to it that you're married to it and you can't break up from it and you can't leave it or move away from it or pivot from your idea. So it's important to love them, but don't marry them. Yeah, that's cool. good. Uh, well, I do want to uh, – I'm running up on time now. Um, so I do want to thank you, Adam, 100%, man. It's been awesome having you on. You broke it down from culture to team hiring to – uh, leadership to pivoting, man, just, you gave a lot of, a lot of fucking great knowledge and, um, I do appreciate it. And I appreciate you being on. And one of the things that I just picked up, you know, from, from the beginning, and then I'm gonna let James close us out. It's about the shitty behind the, the scenes shit that nobody sees. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that, that kind of resonates with me is just like, you know, you just got to get in, you got to do your work and you got to move the needle if it's this much or if it's, if it's, you know, a massive a way that you move the needle, just get in there and move it on a, on a daily basis um, and move it in the right direction. Try. Like it. So James, with that, Hey, grinders like share. If you get an opportunity, if you like this one, share it. All right. Uh, leave us a comment. We take those. We love those. You know, let us know what you think about uh, what we're doing over here with the Grinder Podcast. Uh, thanks to Adam. Hey, we're going to have his contact information in the show notes. Go check it out. Go check out Mind Pump Podcast, okay? Uh, if you're enjoying this one, hey, learn from people who are doing it really well, 
Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, give them a like, give them a listen. We'd appreciate it. And with that, till next time, grind her out.